1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When American President Richard Nixon arrived there 50 years ago today, China was extremely isolated on the world stage. Our correspondent speaks with people who were there, asking what can be learned from Nixon's geopolitical gamble. And it's long been known that all the noise that humans make is bad for animals, including humans themselves. But new research shows how all that racket is also stressy for plants. First up though, Today, a massive legal case against Myanmar begins again. The International Court of Justice in the Netherlands, the UN's judicial arm, is plotting an unusual legal course. The African country of the Gambia is accusing Myanmar of genocide against the Muslim-majority Rohingya. In August 2017, the Burmese military began a campaign of unspeakable violence in Rakhine state. Massacres, rape, arson, a campaign that was thoroughly documented, not least by the UN's High Commission for Refugees.
2: Some have witnessed the deaths of family members and friends. Most have little or nothing to go back to. Uh, Their homes and villages destroyed deep divisions.
1: Tens of thousands of Rohingya were killed and more than three-quarters of a million fled to neighboring Bangladesh. Meanwhile, Aung San Suu Kyi, Myanmar's de facto leader, stood silent. The Nobel Peace Prize winner had become a pariah, and two years later, she defended Myanmar in the first part of the ICJ trial.
3: Regrettably, the Gambia has placed before the
0: court an incomplete and misleading factual picture of the situation in Rakhine State in Myanmar. The situation in Rakhine is complex and not easy to fathom.
1: The country is now under military rule, and the situation for Rohingyas in Rakhine state and elsewhere remains difficult to fathom.
3: At the last hearings at the end of 2019, Myanmar essentially contested the Gambia's right or legal standing to file charges at all. And when the court came back at the start of 2020, they dismissed that and voted to require Myanmar to prevent security forces from committing acts of genocide and to preserve evidence.
1: Susanna Savage writes about South Asia for The Economist.
3: The new hearings will look at Myanmar's objections to that and again challenge the court's jurisdiction and Gambia's legal standing to file charges.
1: And why is it that the the Gambia is the plaintiff here? Why are they leading this case?
3: The Gambia is actually doing this on behalf of the Organization for Islamic Corporation, which covers 57 countries. It's the first time that a country with no direct connection to the alleged crimes, has used its membership in the Genocide Convention to bring a case. The ICJ said that under their rules, all member states can file an application regardless of location. So in this case, it's fallen on one of Africa's smallest countries to do this.
1: And it sounds as if last time around that the trial went Gambia's way. The court ruled to protect Rohingya's. It it batted away this objection that the Gambia didn't have uh, any say in this.
3: Yes, it did largely go in favour of Gambia. But the court doesn't have any mandate to enforce what it rules. So what was decided last time hasn't had a huge impact for the Rohingya in Myanmar. The rulings are sent to the UN Security Council. And with a resolution, the UN Security Council could make direct demands, it could ban practices that limit Rohingya ed- access to education, for example, access to healthcare. But it's essentially a geopolitical problem because the Security Council is deadlocked by the opposition within it from China and Russia, which threaten to veto any resolution punishing Myanmar for actions against the Rohingya.
1: So is that to say then in the final accounting, it won't much matter if the Gambia wins this case, that ruling goes to the UN Security Council and then it falls flat there?
3: Yes and no. I think if the Gambia wins in this hearing, then it's an important step towards action being taken. But by no means is that certain. The way that could happen is that other UN bodies could implement the ICJ's order and increase the political costs on Myanmar, This, for example, could lead to a demand that Myanmar pay reparations to the Rohingya and ensure a safe environment for their return home. But this is just the preliminary objections that they're looking at this week. The actual case is due to go on for years and therefore that limits the meaningful impact it's going to have on the Rohingya right now. And
1: it's a year now since the the military coup that ousted Aung San Suu Kyi. Does that now change how this years-long trial will actually play out?
3: Yes, I think so. Aung San Suu Kyi led the country at the time of the 2017 atrocities, and she also went to The Hague to represent Myanmar during the last round of hearings in 2019. Now she's in prison, and the military junta are in control in Myanmar. This is a state-to-state dispute, So if it had been an individual trial, it would have been handled in the International Criminal Court. But because it's not, in this round, Myanmar is represented by an eight-person delegation, which is chosen by the junta. Some people worry that this confers legitimacy on the junta, that, you know, it's problematic that the junta is there in The Hague representing Myanmar, But these concerns have also been dismissed by others who say that this is still an important hearing and that because the the military are largely responsible for the atrocities against the Rohingya, it's important that they face accountability.
1: And a couple of years on now, how are the Rohingya faring under those military leaders?
3: Life for the Rohingya under the military junta has definitely not got better, The coup that brought the junta to power has led to a fresh wave of violence across Myanmar. Statements from the current UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Matthew Saltmarsh, echo those from five years ago. Some 440,000 people have been newly displaced since February 2021, according to our data, adding
2: to an existing 370,000 who had fled their homes
3: previously. Human rights groups estimate that security forces may have killed over 1,200 people and detained thousands more. This has involved greater movement restrictions and punishments for Rohingya attempting to leave Rakhine state. One thing that's different from five years ago is that the violence is across the country and it's particularly affecting ethnic minorities, which definitely includes the Rohingya, but it's also affecting Burmese people in general. And this has created a sense of solidarity and unity with the Rohingya. Um, and this is felt by the Rohingya that I spoke to in Bangladesh, living in the refugee camps there.
1: Bangladesh being where so many uh, Rohingyas fled during the the original atrocities. I mean, what what's going on on that side of the border?
3: Yeah, there I think the situation has got increasingly difficult for the Rohingya. Lots of Rohingya are being relocated to an island off the coast of Bangladesh called Bashanshah, it's really questioned whether they're moving voluntarily. There's growing insecurity and violence in the camps. There was a a high-profile murder of a Rohingya leader last year. And the government has recently cracked down on Rohingya education in a bid to stop them integrating, which makes life a lot worse for the many children in the camps. When I was in the camps in 2019, action in the ICJ seemed to give Rohingya some hope. I think they thought that it would finally be an opportunity for their persecutors to be held accountable. This time around, although there's some optimism from civil society groups who are watching this keenly, more generally, I get a sense that people have less and less hope that a court thousands of miles away will bring an end to their suffering.
1: Susanna, thanks very much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Jason.
1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 50 years ago today, on a cold and hazy morning, American President Richard Nixon landed in Beijing.
4: If there was a postscript that I hope might be written with regard to this trip it would be the words on the plaque which was left on the moon by our first astronauts when they landed there we came in peace for all mankind
2: it's 50 years since president richard nixon took a gigantic diplomatic gamble to visit chairman Mao zedong in the capital of red china
1: David Rennie is The Economist's Beijing bureau chief and writes Chaguan, our column on China.
2: This was a trip to a communist country whose existence America did not even recognize. So it seems to me that it'd be worth talking to eyewitnesses to those events of a half century ago to ask them if any lessons still remain relevant from 1972, given how much else has changed.
1: Well, take us back to that time 50 years ago, how these talks came about, why they were so important.
2: It's hard to imagine now how isolated China was. 1972, you're halfway through the Cultural Revolution. So you had this Maoist personality cult. You had terrifying violence, international isolation. China had already broken with the Soviet Union and the entire Soviet bloc. It was incredibly poor, but it was still home to a fifth of the world's population. And Richard Nixon, before he became president, had written this rather kind of moving Uh, ask where he said, we simply cannot leave China forever outside the family of nations there to nurture its fantasies, cherish its hates and threaten its neighbours. And so on February the 17th, after a previous secret trip of diplomacy by his top foreign policy aide, Henry Kissinger, Richard Nixon gave a cautiously optimistic speech on the South Lawn at the White House, climbed aboard the Marine One helicopter and set off for this extraordinary historic week-long mission to china
4: we of course are under no illusions that 20 years of hostility between the people's republic of china and the united states of america are going to be swept away by one week of talks that we will have there but what we must do is to find a way to see that we can have differences without being
2: enemies in war they went to beijing they met chairman mao they went to the Great Wall of China, and at the end, Nixon gave a speech in Shanghai summing up the trip.
4: This magnificent banquet marks the end of our stay in the People's Republic of China. We have been here a week. This was the week that changed the world.
2: Shanghai to the Chinese to this day is important because it was where we saw this first joint statement between the People's Republic and America, the Shanghai communique. And that was not just a pledge to normalize relations, but basically the price for Richard Nixon to meet Chairman Mao and visit China at all was to accept certain key red lines of how China sees the world.
1: What was that price and why was America willing to pay it?
2: China's price was above all to have America break its relationship with Taiwan, the island of 23 million people, which back in 1972 was not just an American ally with full diplomatic relations, but America's view was that the rightful government of the whole of China was in exile on Taiwan. So why was America willing to pay that price? Well, Henry Kissinger, his kind of Machiavellian foreign policy guru, had a plan for some triangular balance of power diplomacy. In his view, embracing this weakest of the communist giants, was a way to unsettle the powerful communist giant of the Soviet Union and also unsettle other communist powers above all North Vietnam because Richard Nixon had one election promising to get America out of Vietnam. And Kissinger thought that by throwing the Soviets off balance, by forging a relationship with the Chinese to hedge the Soviets, then maybe Vietnam would be more willing to do a deal and let the Americans leave with some honour.
1: And so in that sense, the, the view of this meeting 50 years on is very different from that of the time. I mean, who did you speak to about all
2: this? Well, I wanted to talk to people who had ideally been in the room. Hello? Oh, hello, Ambassador. It's uh, David Rennie from The Economist in Beijing. It's a pleasure to talk to you. One of the most interesting I spoke to was Winston Lord. He later became ambassador to China in the 1980s. At the time... He was one of Kissinger's most senior aides, and he was the only other American in the room with Nixon, Kissinger, and Mao. And Winston actually met Mao five times. What 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 is your answer to that kind of basic question, which is are there are there any lessons today that remain relevant from what happened in nineteen seventy two, given how much else has changed? <laughs>
4: Lessons, I think, still apply in a very conceptual way is how to approach an adversary like we did 50 years ago. You have to put yourself in the other person's shoes so that you know their bottom line, their national interests, their political imperatives. Uh, You have to make clear your own in each of those categories. Uh, you, You then have to be able to try to bridge the
2: differences. Winston Lords answered the question, Was this a noble visionary visit or about politique? His answer is both.
1: And what about the view from, from the Chinese side? What, what does that look like?
2: So I was really privileged to speak to Jia Jianying. She's a writer. She now is based in New York. But in 1972, she was a 12 year old schoolgirl in Beijing. Her father, like many intellectuals, was in a labor camp. And this was an unbelievably bleak time for families like hers. And above all, she remembers so clearly that the visit of this leader from this country that had been demonized as the most wicked, devilish country on earth, the United States, was a glimpse that maybe there was a different world out there and that the monotony, the relentlessness of Cultural Revolution China wasn't all there was uh, to life.
0: Well, because China was completely shut off Mm -hmm. from the rest of the world, and there's, like, no hope of... um you know, being a part of really um, this uh, 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 modern world, right? I mean, China was so poor. And there's just a sense that, you know, maybe this is going to be the rest of our life until Nixon's visit.
1: So if you set off here looking for lessons to learn from that historic visit, what what have you ended up with?
2: I think if there's any lesson that still remains relevant, it's that you know Kissingerian moving of kind of chess pieces on a board to sort of you know hedge the Soviets and and try and you know intimidate the Vietnamese. That is no longer nearly enough to justify relations between these two giant powers that disagree about so much, whilst doing so much trade and having so many interactions of you know students and people-to-people exchanges. That this is a much larger, harder task keeping China-America relations on the road and so much feels now sour and disappointed compared to that opening in 1972. But I do think that that fundamental idea that China cannot be left on its own, that they have to talk, that remains a piece of statesmanship that for all his other faults, Richard Nixon does achieve his greatest ambition, which is to go down in history.
1: David, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes.
0: People are noisy. Our construction projects, our entertainment... And our vehicles produce a lot of sound. But behind all of the noise is the natural world.
1: Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent for The Economist.
0: We've known for quite a while that animals adapt to our noise. Some get louder. Others change the timing of their calls just to avoid our rush hours. The plants, they're rooted in the spot. They can't get away from the noise. But now, a new study is revealing that plants are actually really stressed out by our noise. So we've always known that noise pollution is a major problem for animals. It has not been known whether or not noise really creates a problem for things like plants, which don't have ears. Certainly, plants that depend upon animals to pollinate them, like bees, if the bees get driven away, the plants suffer. We knew that. Similarly, if there's a plant that depends upon, oh, say, monkeys that eat its fruit and then defecate its seeds further afield, we've known that if the monkeys get driven away, the plant suffers. But what about the actual sound waves affecting plants? Nobody's known that. And so a team of researchers decided to study that more closely sound when you really break down what it is, is sound is energy waves that pass through things like air but they also pass through liquid and solids. And it can be felt by us. Certainly you go to a rock concert, you don't just hear the noise, you feel it. And in the case of really loud noises, the speculation was that plants might feel that too and that what it felt like might not be good. So to this end, Dr. Ali Akbar Ghotbi Ravandi at Shahid Beheshti University in Tehran decided to set up an experiment to look at precisely this question. He and his colleagues set up a laboratory with plants growing in them. In the beginning, the plants were all grown in happy, healthy conditions. They grew French marigolds and scarlet sage. But after two months of growing in their happy, healthy conditions, the researchers split the plants into two groups. Half were put in a space that was still happy and healthy, but involved 73 decibels of traffic noise being played. And plants had this noise going for 16 hours a day. The other plants were left to grow in peaceful silence. After 15 days had passed, the researchers looked at the biochemistry of newly grown leaves in plants from both conditions. The results weren't good. The results suggest that plants actually are quite stressed by noise, even when it's not massive amounts of ultrasound, just constant traffic noise. At the very basic level, the plants that were grown in the noisy condition, the leaves, when they weighed them, they were just lighter. They were stunted in growth, they were really rich in stress compounds that indicate that the plants were really bothered by all of this noise. More importantly, they found that a lot of the healthy hormones that are found in plants that help the plants to grow and reproduce were diminished in the plants that were exposed to the noise. And two, stress hormones, which help plants to cope with insect attacks and salty soil and very high temperatures, drought, uh, cold snaps and the like these stress hormones were very much elevated in the plants that were exposed to noise, suggesting that these plants were responding to the traffic noise in the same way that they would as if they were planted in very polluted soil or in an environment that had adverse conditions. So the natural world itself is not bereft of noise. You have ferns growing next to thunderous waterfalls that seem to be fine. You have plants that grow in alpine meadows that are regularly exposed to the din of raging windstorms. It's very possible that there's variation in the ways in which plants respond to noise. There may be some plants that actually carry genes that help them to cope with all of this noise and do rather well when exposed to it. It's also possible that certain types of noise, say a thunderous waterfall, may not really bother plants in the same way the traffic noise does. We don't know that yet, but it's certainly a question that's worth exploring. And if we find the results to be useful, we may be able to apply that to the kinds of plants that we grow in very noisy environments.
1: Matt Kaplan on stressed-out plants in a cacophonous world.